Hey guys, what's up? It's Lengthy Zemet here with Cartel Aristocrats Finance Cast number 29. We have two special guests this week. If you guys want to go ahead and introduce yourselves, we got one from New York and one from Ohio. Uh, what's up, guys? My name is Edward. I'm with Cronin's Game Store out of Catskill. Uh, I'm their main buyer. You guys may have seen me at Grand Prix before in the past. Sig, Sig here. I guess I was downgraded from you know regular to special guest, but I guess that's fair. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at SigFig8, and I write for Quiet Speculation. And your Twitter avatar just jumped in price. Yeah, it's hundred bucks, but I doubt any copies are selling for that. Oh, I don't know. I just saw the Reddit post. Where can people find you, Doug? Oh, uh, my name is Douglas Johnson. Uh, people can find my, my articles come out on Quiet Speculation. What? Jeremy like whispered, he's like, where can people find you, Doug? <laughs> uh, quiet Speculation, Twitter, Facebook, League of Legends, uh, I don't know, everywhere. Just Google Douglas Johnson, MTG, and stuff will pop up. Travis, now that you're done creeping in the mic, where can people find you? Uh, I'm Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter at WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I write every Wednesday for MTG Price, and I do the podcast MTG Fast Finance. And I'm Zemet. You can find me in the great state of Missouri pretty much anytime. And I think I just started writing for Sylvan MTG and a couple other websites about finance. So hooray. All right. So let's get into this topic. We've sort of been talking about it. We've sort of been behind the scenes going into exactly how we feel about this. And now Ed actually, unlike Jim, who's our other cast member, who actually just went eight and eight at the PT this weekend, uh, which we'll have him on next week when he returns from Hawaii to talk about his experience. Ed was actually at the PT, but what we wanted to know is, is it worth being a pro player in your guys' opinion? Is it worth putting in the hours, putting in the grind to make a couple thousand dollars if you top eight at, this, at Grand Prix and, you know, maybe $50,000 if you win the PT, but compared to other esports, is that even really money? Is that even worth your time? So if we want to just sort of go down the line and talk about how we feel about pro professional magic players. I mean, nobody does this for the EV. Nobody's like, like LSV and uh, like everybody else, like who plays professional magic, isn't doing it for the for the dollar signs. They're doing it because they love the game. Like, I don't, what kind of a question is that? If strictly, if you're talking about this strictly from an effort value standpoint, then no. Like, go work at McDonald's or Price Chopper or whatever. But like, if you love magic and if you have the time and like determination and self discipline, then yeah, fuck it, go for it. Ed, how do you feel about professional magic play? So I have played on the Pro Tour before, and from my perspective, it's not it has absolutely nothing to do with money. Like if the money is just there as hey, this is a tangible this is something tangible you can obtain, but really when you're playing, when you're grinding out the PTQs, you know, driving like six, eight, ten hours to the close PT, uh, PTQ or flying to a Grand Prix and playing over the weekend, it's it's really about you're just trying to chase this ultimate goal. To me, the money never mattered. It was just I've always wanted to play on the Pro Tour, and that was my main reason. Um, I think a lot of people who play at the very high levels, I think they do have a genuine love for the game, and I think that is really what keeps them going rather than any sort of EV associated with it. And um, I think just I think it's also a very good competitive outlet for people. You know, people from a sports perspective people can go out like throw a football around or play league of legends professionally or whatever it just happens that these players are drawn to magic as their competitive outlet 
And that's not really something that you can measure in terms of EV. Sig? Um, I have to agree with what's been said. Isn't there a saying like, if you love your job, then you never work a day in your life or something like that? I mean, if your passion also is in line with what you're pursuing for a career or as part of a career, then more power to you. You can say that there's very good EV for being an engineer, but you can guess how much stress and, and struggles that I deal with just with the day-to-day -day type of stuff. So, right, yeah, but the flip side. The counterpoint for that is you're sitting in an office all day. You know when your next money is coming on the table, and you're making considerably more than any pro player out there. And the other thing is, you have a 401k, their company's going to take care of you, and if you want to get to a new job, you have that, you know, you work for a really big company, you're rather high up, you have that on your resume, whereas someone who might have played Magic, do they want to put that on their resume for the last five years? Professional Magic player, how does that look to the muggles that are trying to interview you? Like, what, what does that say? It depends on where you want to work, though. Like, Brian Kibler gets a job, like, designing games, like, uh... I don't, I don't know what the company he works for is called, but like LSV is the vice president of Channel Fireball. Like, if you have that determination, like you can make it work in the areas you want to make it work in. Like, on, on a quick, on a quick side note, if you play professional Magic, it doesn't matter what job you're going for. You put yeah. that on your resume. Like, that's good enough. Like, if you're an actual professional Magic player, like gold or higher, that's resume yeah. quality. Yeah, one of my good friends, um, Andrew Brown, he uh, he posted on Facebook that he's actually going to go work for Wizards R and D. And this was right after hitting platinum last season. So he has platinum for most of this year or for the entire uh, pro year, but he's actually just giving that up. Hawaii is what was his last pro tour. And then he's going leaving to work for R and D after this. So like, yeah. Like Jeremy, you're listing all these reasons like, Oh, it's not worth it. Like, Oh, it's not like you should never go pro. Like, but is you're dealing with people who like love the game to the point that they're willing to like sit in the back of a car for 30 hours a week and like, just like dedicate their entire life to something and then they can they can turn it into something if they work hard enough like people like all of the designers at wizards like have played magic for decades and like all the like people who um like if you compare this to league of legends like so many people who work at riot were like on the professional scene and like people who were on the professional scene like hi reginald like they built a brand out of it and they built a team and they've like have turned it into a brand and like make money off of it so like it's Yes, you can do it. It's just you take you need all the self determination and all of the willpower and like all of the time and money. Yeah, I want to chime in here because I have strong opinions about this. So I've been thinking about it for a long time, basically since I started playing Magic semi competitively back in Zendikar. And the short version is that you shouldn't play professional Magic, with the sole exception of somebody who basically is treating the entertainment value and the uh, personal satisfaction as worth a lot. And that's subjective. I can't tell you what that is worth for each person. Um, but for most people, you really, really have to love the game to play at that, to, to make it worth playing at that level, because it's not, it's not like, it's not when you're sitting down to the semifinals of the pro tour that you need to be in love with. It's the ninth and 10th hour and 17th hour of grinding standard mirrors uh, to prepare for the pro tour. Like those are the times you really have to be enjoying what you're doing because what you find is that even like, you, you know, professional platinum level players like Owen Turtonwald makes fine money uh, for playing a game, but it's not stellar 
compared to having a real job. Um, and especially the type of people that can compete at that level that are smart enough and talented enough to compete at that level and be consistently platinum could be doing much, much better in basically any industry they wanted. Um, so, and even if you take away the real job aspect, if you say, okay, I'm not, I don't even want to get a real job, but I still want to play games. Even a game like league is still going to pay way, way, way more than uh, a magic player is, you know, a platinum level, you know, Owen Turtonwald moving to league where he might not be platinum level could still do probably better for himself. There as like a mid tier pro than a top pro in magic. So it really comes down to you absolutely positively have to love the game. And the worst part about this is that if you are sacrificing the, your current career and current job to go play, like be on the train full time and do that full time, uh, you're kind of setting yourself back because you are not, like I said that you can put professional magic on your resume and you can, but it's not going to take the place of um, real work experience for most industries. It's worth something, but three years as a platinum level player is not the same as three years as an engineer or uh, writing professionally or doing editor work or things of that nature. So, I mean, you know, again, it comes down to you have to love magic enough. And I think almost nobody loves magic enough to be worth it. I agree with Travis here. I don't think the EV of professional play is worth it. I think you could be making far more money but, doing anything else. But nobody does it for the EV, though. What? Nobody does this for the – nobody who's already there and nobody who's on the Pro Tour is doing it for the EV. Nobody think, doing think about it like this, Doug. You can play Magic professionally and make, I don't know, what, 80 grand a year. Or no, can, no way you make 80 grand professionally. Well, that's I mean, you're not missing. I mean, they're not making 80 grand from like prizes, right? But like, whatever, you know, they're writing for websites. They're making some amount of money. I'm just going to give you 80 grand. We could debate how, what the actual number is. You can make 80 grand a year playing professional magic at the top level, or you could make what, like 150 or 200 grand getting involved with League, maybe? I mean, how much do you think Kibler is getting casting like Hearthstone and all the work he does with Blizzard? Now, do you love magic? twice as much or three times as much as you love these other games that you could be doing professionally that's where the equation comes in is not comparing the, the prize pool for league too though like you don't make that money unless you're on like tsm or clg or c9 like those or are you stream all day long right yeah. right right but I'm, I'm comparing people like kibler and lsv and those guys to comparable league people right like we're not sure. talking about players like jim sure, sure, sure. or or you know silver levels right okay yeah that makes sense I just don't think, and especially when we shift this into MTG Finance, the EV, and of course I know Ed's going to have a counterpoint to this, the EV of even trying to make MTG Finance your job is insane. I don't know why people do this at all. You have people who work literally, what is it, like 50 hours in three days just grinding the trade tables, trying to scrape together a living. And in most cases, especially with some of the stuff that's happened with Ogre and Troll until lately, Ogre would give people binders of Troll and Toad stuff to uh, trade on the floor, and then they would get a cash percentage that was abysmal, abysmally, wow, I'm, I'm turning into Saffron Olive here with the pronunciation, abysmally low as far as the percentage of work you put in versus the amount of money you get. And so a lot of the people that were working for Ogre decided to just go and start their own trades and keep all the money for themselves instead of getting a percentage of someone else's cards when you're trading. And you look at the the buyers, a lot of these buyers aren't making that much money. A lot The cool stuff guys probably get treated the best out of anyone. Now, I don't know that Kerwan's that well. I've only had an interaction with them once, to be fair. But cool stuff flies their buyers out. They pay for everything. They pay a pretty good industry wage compared to some of the other vendors on the circuit. 
And it's just interesting to see people that will, that are trying to make this a career sort of, that are trying to, I don't know what they're going to do in 10 years if, if magic collapses. And that's a whole nother discussion, but the amount of money that they're making right now, if you're not on top of it, if you're not the one running it, or at least in charge of something, there's no point in doing MTG finance as a job. So that's just my opinion. So I think part of the problem here is similar kind of tying back to what pro professional magic, the EV of that is kind of in the vein of what Doug is saying. You have to enjoy what you're doing. And I think a lot of the people that work at the booth with me, I think they do enjoy what they're doing. Yeah, you could go out and just find a job that just consistently pays well. You don't have to deal with, oh, we're flying out this weekend, flying out Thursday. We have to do all the prep work for a booth. And then you work 50 hours, 50, 55 hours over three days to get an additional paycheck. And then you go back and you basically just rinse and repeat. Like, is it is it glamorous? Not necessarily. But is there a price that you can put on, you know, I've been to... I think this year I've been to 25 Grand Prix and I've been to 25 different places. And that's not really something you can put a price, uh, like a price on. It's just one of those like intangibles that some people can work their entire life, have a great paycheck. And at the end of it, what do you have to show other than amount of money? And we're kind of getting into like the philosophical side. And I'm sure some people enjoy that, right? Some people enjoy having amount of money. But for me, the people I've met, the places I've seen, the people I've hung out with just on all these events, that's not really something I would ever change at least in the immediate future for me. And yeah, it, it, may, it might be a short side way of thinking, but that's not really any different than someone saying, oh, I'm just going to grind out all the Grand Prix and try and chase Platinum on the Pro Tour. It's not really any different than that. I, I think these are completely, this is completely fair. I'm not contesting anything what you're saying. I guess my my concern here is that for, you're leveraging your future to, and I don't mean you specifically, but sort of like in general, especially professional players are leveraging their future to do this type of thing. Um, they're not, it's, it's sort of like, uh, it's it's almost like a compound interest, right? Or your 401k. The longer you take to start putting your, your resources into it, you're going to get way less at the end. And if you do, the more you do early on, it pays huge dividends down the road. And I'm not talking about you're about money, I'm talking about your time and experience. So the earlier in your life you can really do something with yourself and, and cultivate very uh, marketable and useful skills, it's gonna pay you so much down the road. Whereas if you put it off by five or 10 years to do magic stuff, you have a lot of fun now, but are you in much worse shape down the road? Um, and again, there's no, there's no formula for any of this. Everyone's gotta figure it out for themselves. But you know, I have multiple friends who are at the pro, you know, kind of like bordering silver level, like either hitting silver and trying to stay on the train. And I, I don't think it's worth it for them at all. And I mean, I know, you know, I can kind of observe their relationship with the game and how much they care for it. I, I really think it's it's a bad idea. And it's why I completely stopped. I was like, I'm not, I don't love this enough for this to be worth my time. No, it's not the same for everybody, but. Sure. But I think you're, there's also like that factor of, I want to look back in like 30 years and just be able to tell my kids like, Dad, how'd you pay for grad school? Oh, I bought and sold trading cards for like seven or eight years, and that's how I did it. Like, that's that's something that I'm not going to have the chance to do 30 years from now. But you, but you are you specifically are accomplishing another goal while you're doing it. Yeah, I was going to say we're both in college. We're both going into higher education past our undergrad. You're already working on your next thing. We're both doing something where we're going to have something after magic. Magic is just getting us through this time. We're not doing this full time. I mean, right now we're doing it as sort of another job with the amount of hours we're putting in, but we're not like 
investing fully in magic. We have something else on the horizon. But even for somebody who is like investing 40 hours a week, like not like basically putting off their undergrad for like four or five years, like maybe they're saving up money with magic finance to afford their undergrad. Like, I think that's totally fine. Like if you love the game that much and if you're willing to put in the hours, um, I think that's fine to like put your undergrad off for like four or five more years, save up that like 40 or 50K that you need and then just be able to tell that story like 40 or 50 years from now because that's not something you're going to be able to do. Like I, later I can test your claim that someone could save 40 or 50 grand yeah. doing this for five years. If they were willing to put in the time and effort as a full-time job, like I think they could. I feel it would be much easier to have done that from when we both started around 2011, 2012 when modern was becoming a thing to where it is now. So it's also it, easier if you just like worked at McDonald's or something for five years, you can probably bank 50 grand. Yeah. But then you hate yourself the entire time. Like I'm, it just well, depends on like what you value that at. If you're going to make 50 grand over five years, you have to be earning net 10 grand a year on top of all your other expenses. So, you know, if you, it, it costs you what bare minimum 20, 25 grand a year to live. So you have to be making basically a full-time wage doing this, which is possible. Some people do it. Some people are quite successful, but you know, if you, if, if you quit and did this full-time 40 hours a week, you think you're making 45 grand a year doing it? Personally, yeah. You don't think that there's a cap like the first, I don't know, 15 or 20,000 is accessible because there's a volume of players, but once, but like there aren't enough players in your region or whatever to really keep you to keep that, to, to ride that, that much higher. Cause I then you have to start expanding. I think there's enough shops in my area that don't sell singles that I'd be able to support if I wanted to do this full time, like spend 45 hours, 50 hours a week doing it. I'll give that to you. Maybe you're right. I don't think, but I don't think most people are in that situation. Sure. Yeah, I would agree with Travis there. So let's talk about the quote unquote 401ks of magic, our, our investments that we invest into now that pay off later. I, I wrote an article about this for price like God a year ago, but I know Sig loves this stuff. Do you think old school or reserveless cards is essentially the 401k of magic or are there better investments like bulk rares, bulk commons and uncommons or sealed boxes? And we all know sealed boxes are a trap and a straight forward. But are the returns on older booster boxes, bulk, or reserveless cards better than a 401k? Or no, is come it on, better? man. One of the goth booster boxes are worth it. I swear to God. Yeah, Sid, you want to talk about your genius buy the other day? Some porn of the goth booster boxes for 53 bucks you want to ship me? Because that's about what I paid. I would not buy born of the boxes. Born of the gods boxes for $50. No Would way. you sell them to me for $53 then? I no, because I don't I think my distributor can get me them for that cheap, but exactly. I also don't want to buy them at all. I mean, I saw a listing on eBay. I was watching one. So it was an auction, right? So people actually had to bid on it, and it sold in the low 70s or something like that. So there is demand for it. It had multiple bidders. So just give it enough time. It's not like I'm going to go bankrupt with the opportunity cost of 50 bucks. How, how many of them were you? How many of those bidders were you? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't on it. I just watched it. Say so then you're the old school expert. You I know you're shifting away recently on quiet speculation, but you really keep track of all the old school cards because it's the format both you and I play. How do you feel about these cards? I, I feel like the easy money has been made, honestly. I think there was this like surge in, in interest and demand. You saw some of the more popular cards in old school really jump up in value. But now I start looking at, you know, okay, let's look at some of the peripheral cards. They're start, starting to gain a little bit of traction, you know, your sideboard stuff. I mentioned Beta Gloom, I think, the, the other time we talked. Um, those kinds of things still might have a little bit of movement left in them. 
but I think that, you know, the, the player growth now is going to kind of grow stagnant at this point. The format's getting really expensive to play. So honestly, I think you're back to the, uh, you know, normal attrition of copies getting picked up by collectors and then demand gradually taking copies off the market. I don't think you're going to see this tremendous growth like from a $100 card to a $400 card over a two-month period anymore. Like, you fucking Jews am gin. Stealing that from me at Vegas. <laughs> Um, Seven bucks. <laughs> from a ven- from a vendor's perspective, would you rather have reserve list cards walk up to your booth? Would you rather have bulk walk up to your booth, or would you rather have old school cards walk up to your booth in near mint condition? What do you think you can move well, or what do you think presents the best opportunity to make money? Um, so the way I've looked at things is I've played Magic long enough. I've kind of seen the ebb and flow of cards, like formats, things that get super popular and they kind of fall off like we've seen this with like tiny leaders i kind of agree with sig the way old school is kind of going we've kind of seen the initial surge everyone's kind of jumped forward and then it's kind of caught up uh yes that is a giant bulbasaur um but sorry um we've seen the initial surge everyone's kind of caught up same with like how modern everyone kind of got on the modern bandwagon and then uh the forerunners really took advantage of that. Like, you know, people like us who were kind of at the forefront, did, were, who were there in 2011, we really took advantage of that. And once the rest of the world kind of caught up, it's become much, much harder to kind of gain that initial edge. So for me as a booth, I've kind of, I'm kind of past the point where I want to be hinging on these super narrow markets that it's kind of hard to get in and kind of hard to get out. I would rather, from a booth, I would rather buy a card that I can move 100 times over rather than have a high value card, see a larger margin on it, larger margin on it, and then be stuck with it for a while. So basically- So that means that you want to buy all my Alpha Dual Lands this weekend, right? I do not want to buy a single <laughs> Alpha Dual Land for you this week. So my question for you is uh, like, as, as Kieran's, I guess, do you just like sort of find your place in that market and like just pick which one, pick which market you want to deal best in? Because like, I know, we all know there's certain stores at certain GPs who like specialize in certain areas. like. Tales of Adventure wants all your casual Avacins and they want all your like Dark Steel Forges and like Haruya wants like all your Tarmogoyfs, your Underground Seas, your Near Mint like format staples. Like what is your like experience is your like area of expertise, I guess? For us, it basically breaks down into cards that just turn over on TCG Player very quickly. So those are just like the one to five dollar casual cards uh, that people just will always love, always buy in large quantities, stupid things like Cemetery Reaper. That card is like, you know, two, two yeah. and a half dollars, yeah. right? And most, but most people who have them, they'll gladly ship you them for a dollar. And if, as soon as you put it on, it basically sells right away, yeah. right? It's those kind of cards that we do very well with, that cards that we'll always buy. So um, like Hedron Crab. Exactly. It's yeah, like, the, like, so I, we have, so like one of my buyers, he, his job is basically to put cards onto TCG player. So he knows very well the type of casual cards that move in very, very large volume. And then uh, for me, the cards that I tend to buy are the more, um, the tournament staples, cards that will turn over very quickly. So I was very, very uh, closely watching the trends in Proto Honolulu cards that would surge based on how much, the number of copies that were people were seeing, both in how many copies per deck and how much of the field it was seeing played overall. And I'm kind of looking at that going this week at a problem. Those are cards I want to pick up in high volume because those cards will turn over very quickly. And as such, I don't need to make a large margin on them as long as I can lock in a margin and just make up for it in volume. 
And the interesting thing is this weekend at Providence is going to be sort of interesting based on the expected turnout and the fact of which uh, vendors are going to be there. Normally when Haru is in the room, it's pretty cutthroat when it comes to tournament staples, but they're not officially going to be there, though some of their buyers will be paying their normal prices this weekend uh, through other booths that they're working at, which is a really interesting arbitrage opportunity, I guess. But yeah, there's no Wizards Tower with their six electronic boards and the fact that they update their inventory through like an Excel spreadsheet every time they buy in every single card. So they know exactly what to pay on every single copy that they're buying in. Whereas like someone like Thomas accidentally bought too many thought seizes at, what was it, 12 or $15 a couple Grand Prix ago? So it's just interesting to see based on the vendors that are going, uh, what the buy prices are going to be for the weekend. Uh, you could definitely see shifts. Like there's obviously some, there's definitely like the power vendors there. We see uh, like Haruya is obviously towards the top. MTG deals, Grey Ogre. Those are generally what we consider to be kind of the giants in the industry in terms of Grand Prix vendors, mainly because they're very, very aggressive. They have very, very good outs that are non-US markets. So they have access to markets that your average consumer just, just has just not been remotely aware of. Your average consumer is just going to think, how is it possible that they can pay $275 on a near-mint underground sea? Like, in what world is that? Like, that's just, those are just unheard of things for us. Um, so when they're not there, the bar is a, certainly a little bit lower in terms of buy prices because now we're competing against other vendors that are taking, that are taking part in the U.S. market. So we start seeing people, like, the mainstays, like, cool stuff, uh, who goes every Grand Prix? Um, I channel Fireball. These are the types of vendors that I would say are just right below the top ones, mainly because they're so ubiquitous. You really do see them at every Grand Prix, and they kind of set the bar for what card should be sold at because everyone knows them. Everyone will see, oh, Channel Fireball is paying X dollars on this staple, etc. So those are kind of the guidelines that people use. Um, so by not having the top tier vendors, it kind of opens up a lot more space, mainly because not every vendor in the U.S. market has sort of the same demand for cards that a lot of the overseas vendors do, like Grey Ogre or MTG deals or Haruya. And we also have Tokyo MTG this weekend, another Japanese company, though they have their American buyers working this weekend. Uh, the head, Some of the head guys aren't going. It's just their American buyers. So it'll be interesting to see if there's any arbitrage opportunities there as well. Um, but the other thing that's really important when it comes to a Grand Prix, and I know we've pretty much all written about this on Grand Prix reports, where you're put where your table is, where your booth is, in relativity, in relativity, Jesus, to where the doors are really depends still, on how many still sales. Didn't get there. Still didn't get there. How many sales or buys you're going to get. If you get put behind other vendors towards the back corner, it's not going to be a good weekend for you on average most of the time unless your buy prices are just that good. So the closer you are to the door or the closer you are to the, the big, to all the tables, the better weekend you'll have would be my opinion. So Sig, I know you've wanted to touch on this. A lot of us are talking about selling out soon of non-essential stuff. And Ed, you might want to get into this too. I don't feel, especially going into the winter, that it's a good time to sell. But what do you think one of the the bad things that could happen to your collection are, Sig, if you hold on to, mo to what you're thinking of selling through the winter? Related to the old school discussion and, and how prices have run up quite significantly recently. And I feel like 
the momentum has finally died down, which is not necessarily a bad thing. I feel like we found that next plateau. But again, I, I don't see a huge push higher. So uh, I have my old school deck, but I also have a few other things that I've picked up along the way that I thought, hey, this would be fun for a rainy day or something like that. And, you know, I've seen a little bit of price appreciation on those things. And so I see little harm in, in cashing out. I mean, recently I consolidated my most of the value of my collection into a vintage deck. Uh, so I don't want to have a ton of additional resources in, in other cards. I just prefer not to go that deep into magic, honestly. Ed, how do you feel about normally we have this annual thing where prices will decline in December and then they'll go back up with modern season. How do you feel that buy prices towards the end of the year that vendors might be offering will change because of this? Or in some cases, some of the people who do have booths that I've talked to have said that they're not selling as much as they used to and that collections are coming in faster than normal. Does this affect the market at all that we're starting to see as we get closer towards the end of the year? Um, so I think there's two parts of that question. So first, when you specifically refer to modern, I think this will be the first year where we truly don't have a modern season because now that there's no longer a modern pro tour, I feel like modern is slowly getting marginalized in the sense that, yes, there will always be interest, there will always be the modern diehards, but people who who will continue to innovate into modern, who will produce new results in modern, those are kind of falling by the wayside simply because there's no real season for it anymore. The real, the closest thing we have to a season is the PPTQ season that occurs late summer, beginning of autumn. So that's the closest thing we have to a modern season. In terms of people moving cards, we do see larger collections come in or more people looking to sell towards the end of the year. I imagine mainly because people just, with school picking up, that tends to lower people's interests. Uh, people just, you, I, I definitely had the conversation of, oh, I'm going back to school. I just don't really have time to play anymore. I just want to get rid of my cards. That's come up before. And you also have the conversation of, oh, I need money for Christmas. I just, these are cards I don't really use. I've had in the past. I'm just looking to get rid of them at this point. So, so we do see prices dip mainly because the supply um, of people who are looking to cash out, it definitely goes up compared to slower times like summer or spring when people aren't really focused on that. And as, a su as such, it does cause the prices to dip a little bit, again, mainly because we just have so many more cards going in and the amount of people that are looking to buy, it, may, they, it stays relatively constant through from now basically until December or January. Sig, is there anything that you want to add to that, especially when it comes to old school, since Ed is such a knowledgeable person when it comes to this sort of stuff? I mean, not necessarily. I think it makes sense. I I used to, I thought there was a, a, a usual spike in the fall, but maybe I'm mistaken, but I didn't see any sort of growth like the, that this time. The fall spike is like now, and it's just like the non, the new format, stuff from the old standard that didn't rotate yet. So like Battle for Zendikar, gotcha. sh maybe Shadows would be spiking now. Wandering um, Fumeral, for example. That's I mean, right now it's mostly right. Kaladesh stuff, though. Like, all the random, like, the Pro Tour was all Kaladesh stuff. It wasn't, like... So, the new, the new block structure screws with this, and we don't understand yeah. it yet. But the old the old standard, it used to be, like, Return the Ravnica staples spiked when Innistrad came out. And yeah. that Innistrad staples spiked when, uh, whatever the next set was. I don't remember that. That was Return to Ravnica. You're off chronologically, but we... I don't care! Here. Hi, Travis's girlfriend. 
So basically, the only correct advice is to just keep buying Black Lotuses and squirreling them away, obviously. Collection buying is way more lucrative than speculating anyway. Unless you're buying out the market on reserveless cards is what three people on this cast have done, so... Not too surprised at you guys being detriments. You 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 also made a point of saying um, you said oh you guys that are thinking about selling out is now a good time because uh, yeah. I was I was one of the people who said oh I'm thinking about moving a lot of my cards. Um, I mean the time of the year is not important. Like I don't mind I don't mind waiting until whatever the best season is. This isn't like a decision that I have to make this week. It's more like I have a humongous binder full of ju just four ofs of modern staples. And it's like, you know, if I'm not going to play modern, but twice over the next two years, uh, is it worth continuing to own these? So my Through the Breaches, Gario's Vengeance, Obstinate Bayloths, uh, Life from the Loams, Golgari Grave Trolls, all those types of cards. You know, I, I, I start from Affinity. I could build almost any modern deck, like 70, 70 out of 75. Is it worth sitting on those? For two years if you're not really going to play and those especially are the especially with modern masters 3 coming out if they spoil something at worlds for example like gorio's vengeance at mythic you get dinged right away though at mythic i don't think it would affect it too much so, so gorio's and through the reach i actually just sold or i started selling them because uh i mean i expect them to show up in some capacity it's been so long but you, you know what i mean like all the just modern filler the cards just stony silence all those cards between like two and thirty dollars right that are just like if i'm not using these on a regular basis is it worth owning them and in the past it has been but i'm kind of getting to the point where i'm like this might be a liability now i'm starting to feel the same way about legacy i mean sure you've got some how dare stuff but how dare you i mean where's the where's the legacy support it's definitely a lot less than it once was i used to watch legacy every weekend like when star city did it on sundays and now it's like you know crickets Mike so. goes ahead and throws a legacy tournament this weekend and gets, what is it, like 200 and change people to show up. St. Louis keeps breaking legacy open tournaments consecutively as far as attendance goes. I get a bunch of random people to drive three hours to my shop and play legacy for basically a pittance. But I don't know I what's know. wrong with Ohio, man. You guys have a ton of stuff going on. Out of all of these players, I'd be curious to know how many of them were playing legacy three years ago. And I oh, bet yeah. the number Probably is every single one of them. Yeah. Eight, right. Eternal Masters helped a lot. We actually had three people buying the Merfolk because of how cheap it is. Uh, with They bought Force of Will when it went down to 70 on TCG. They bought Wastelands at 25. I think they're still waiting for Aether Vial to get reprinted, but the Merfolk's getting really close to just being a cheap deck to pick up for Legacy. Aether Vial was reprinted. We just got it in Kaladesh. That's not the same, Travis. Uh -huh. Um... But yeah, I mean, I'm looking at moving a sizable amount of cards at um, Providence and then a sizable amount of cards at Dallas, I believe. And you it's just want to turn them into soul rings, don't you? What? And don't you just want to turn all your lotuses into soul rings or something? Yeah, so we actually just bought 282 soul rings last week. I sold 26 while I was in the shop for two hours today. Like, it's insane. Soul ring is the best card that's ever been printed to sell. So... God bless every person that comes in and says, I'd like to buy a soul ring for every one of my EDH decks at the same time. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, just to kind of wrap up this topic, I own most of modern aside from a couple of, aside from affinity and a couple of random staples that I've already sold play sets of everything. And I am pretty close to just tossing them or, or, or selling out. And I'd be curious to hear if anyone thinks that that's not a good idea um, because you know, you have to have a lot of, 
personal value in being able to play with those cards on a regular basis. And, you know, given that I'm not playing as much magic today as I was, and I don't think I will be in the future, it, 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 it's just, it seems like it's just cheaper to sell them all. And if I decide to come back, I can, you know, I can buy, rebuy in and I think it'll average out to be less than that it was now. So I'd be curious if anyone thinks that that's not a good idea. So SIG is the investment guy, right? SIG's the one that has the most money in the actual market when it comes to real life stuff. I think your ROI before SIG answers this is worth just getting out based on an investment standpoint. You've probably beaten the market. You're probably above 12% return over three years or whatever, including inflation. So I think it's about time for you to get out if you just look at what you paid, especially on stuff like Noble Hierarchs. Sure, they could go higher, but your investment's good. Why not let someone else make 10%? Just reinvest that money on a collection that comes along. It's worth pointing out that like 60% of this is all foil. Oh, gross. For what that matters. Yeah, that's uh, that's out of my area of expertise. <laughs> But, you know, we've seen insane gains since 2011 with Modern. And then we saw great gains again on some stuff with both Modern Master sets. If you picked up uh, Stone Hewer Giant back at a quarter after Modern Masters 2 came out, and they were literally 75 cents on TCG Player back when only actual game shops could sell on TCG Player. Now they're finally back up to $5 after three years. It's a great return, even though you have to eat the cost of fees and a stamp and all that stuff. Why not get out? So I'll give you a cliche and then something, some actual advice. So the cliche that I like to use is no one ever went broke selling for a profit. So if you're profitable on these, like there's no, there's nothing wrong with taking money off the table. And then I struggle with this, this idea psychologically. I'm an all or nothing kind of guy, but the, the safest way to play it might be to sell half, you know, like when people ask me, Oh, I had this stock come up a bunch. What should I do? And I say, well, sell half your position or sell some percentage of your position. But I don't know if that makes sense because it's not like you're going to sell half of play sets. I'm not sure how you would pick what to sell, what not to, but that could be one way of taking some profits, but maintaining some exposure. I mean, you could go for the angle of, Oh, I'm going to keep one deck. But the problem is, is that deck changes like every week, right? So you could say, Oh, I'm going to keep whatever ad nauseum today, but who knows what it's you know, ad nauseum is a bad example because it's probably not going to change much, but you know, there's no way you could keep John. John does like a 200 card deck. Ed, is there no, anything I don't like modern myself, but yeah. Ed, is there anything that you want to talk about from a vendor side that we haven't touched on? Um, I guess briefly, I would say I would I greatly sympathize with Travis and your idea of trying to sell out. I've definitely been in a similar boat ever since I moved out to New York. I've just found myself playing less and less, and I've just had very very little reason to keep cards. Um, guys, I'll just kind of rotate my cam. That entire shelf back there, those are all cards I brought over from Portland, and they have more or less sat there since I've come here. And I just have so many cards that I just have really no desire to hold on to. Value going up or down is irrelevant to me. It's literally just taking up space, and my room is just simply not big enough to hold all this. And we're kind of at the point where if you're already into modern, you've already made your money, I would be happy to get out mainly with the way that Watsi has just been pushing reprint so heavily in these past few months. Looking back at first, we had eternal masters in June. We had conspiracy in uh, August. We have masterpieces now and then masterpieces going forward every three to four months. It's really, really hard to justify. Anthologies, blah, 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 blah. Like yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just really hard. It's just like, you know, what's next on chopping block? Like, my Tarmogoys aren't safe for Mar Masters 3. 
Liliana's not safe from Modern Masters 3, Snapcaster's Maze is not safe from Modern Masters 3. Like, we really, it's just like a matter of, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when now. And okay. if you're, if you have no reason to hold on to them, I'm just happy to cash out and move on to something else. All right, I have two questions. Uh, the first one is, are the cards that you brought from Portland that you're not using personal play sets? Yes. Like cards yes. that you have, okay. And yeah, the yeah, a lot, of it, a lot of it was like my standard stuff and a lot of it was like modern stuff that I've used to build modern decks before that. Okay, second question, and this is for everybody. Specific card, pa uh, pack foil Snapcasters. Get rid of it right so, away. Yeah, I, pack I talked to the owner, foil? Yeah. I talked to the owner of Mooslu while I was asking for his hot list for this upcoming weekend, and he's like, we bought way too many cards in. We need to get rid of them, and I can't sell any Snapcaster mages. He's apparently sitting on a, like a couple hundred or something that just haven't moved. So I, I would just get rid of them right away. I sold my foil play set relatively recently, and I was very, very happy to do so at full retail. Check out that price chart when you look at like MTG stocks or whatever. It's just like straight shot downward on that card. <laughs> yeah, foils so, yeah. have, uh, as a whole, foils have become harder and harder to move. We used to see the old, old trend of, oh, I'll trade you my two non foils for your one foil. That has basically just been tossed by the the wayside now we're looking at like one and a half to one foil it just seems like the demand for foils is just slowly dropping and especially now that with Mar masters three uh if it falls a trend of Mar masters one and two the price of a foil card over a non-foil version is maybe 20 percent higher which is ridiculous to think about but i think at the booth we, we saw a normal noble hierarchs for i think 65 or so 62 65 i'd have to double check but I think we had, the last time we had a full Noble Hark, I think we sold for like 74. And it was this type of thing that we just wanted to get rid of it just because it, it's just so hard to get rid of. People just people just like foils so much, or non-foils so much more than foils. That's fair, although I think Noble Hierarch is a specific uh, uh, case because of the all-foil Lara packs. Also the fact that... Um... The judge promo is way nicer. Sig has to get out of here. Sig, where can people find you? Uh, best to find me either on Twitter at SigFig8, and also my articles go live once a week on Quiet Speculation. They go up on Mondays. So check it out. And have a good one. But yeah, getting into essentially the foiling, uh, we actually had a viewer message us about the foil noble hard price. Like, I think the judge foil looks way better, and it's not that much more expensive than the Modern Masters 2 foil. So yes, that's, it it's like 20 or 30 bucks. Uh, we've actually uh, seen a, a spike in the judge foil price. Yeah. Uh, I think there was like a buyout some time ago. So that one is actually oh, quite yeah, a bit more. It jumped like right after, like a couple weeks after the regular one did. Oh, well, yeah, the, the judge promo is like back. 140 and then in the regular foils, it's like 50% higher. See, this is what happens when you don't buy foils at all. It's so nice just not having to care about foil pricing. Also, because none of your customers can afford foils, but that's besides the point. So, yeah. Don't buy foils, they're a trap. Unless you want to buy foil Russian Jaces, in which case contact me at Zemba Sells Magic because I need to get rid of a set. So, yeah. How in the world did you get fun. suckered into buying a set? I am actually played with them for quite a while. I'm just ready to move on with them. It's not like a huge financial loss. I didn't really pick them up at anything too high. So I'm not too worried. But yeah, if anyone wants to set a four Russian chases, let me know. You can mind sculpt away. Um, so yeah, 
we are all agreed that maybe it might be a good time to sell either now or in the future just because prices are going to start dropping and you don't want to be caught holding your card still, essentially. Well, I don't want people to misconstrue this as like because you're always a fan of like the sky is falling. Sky is falling, magic is ruined this forever. Is not the so, not like, I'm repealing the reserve not, list tomorrow. This All is not a bunch of finance people saying nothing. sell out of magic, the game is dying. Yep. This is us saying if you don't need extra random modern staples you haven't touched in eight months, you might as well get rid of them and use the money to get something else. We but need to get Corbin. Shrinking. We need to get Corbin on because Corbin did not uh, necessarily agree with this perspective. So maybe we can grab him next week. I don't agree with this perspective either. But Who Corbin knows? will be able to explain it better than I will. My perspective? Yes. Ah, well, magic is dying. Everyone who's listening, sell your cards. Don't sell them. Well, sell them to me first. And then I'll sell them to someone else. But yeah, magic's dead. Rest in peace. So I'm yeah. just not confident in Hasbro to do what's best for people who have this much money invested in the game. Now, a, a normal casual player who's just starting to get in that didn't have the opportunity that we did to get into the game as easily as we did a couple years ago or five years ago, I guess. Um, so they're going to start appealing to those players and they're doing everything they can to get money from these players' wallets. They've got From the Vault this, Anthologies that, Promo this. And I'm just not comfortable holding that many magic cards, except for casual and EDH stuff, because that stuff will always have a demand. I mean, they're using these products as like a test run to see how much of the market they can like push, right? Like they're not yeah. going to they're not going to like continue to go up and up and up and up and up until like they figure out how much what's the max amount they can sell, and they're not going to go up more than that. They're going to say, oh, in 2016 we we were able to sell this much. We obviously like we we broke barriers from last year. Let's see if we can push it a little bit more. And then, like, they'll find out where their breaking point is, and they'll say, okay, we'll stop. This is where we saturate the market. And then they'll just stop and figure that, like, they'll find the sweet spot. They're not going to just, like, destroy the game intentionally by continuously increasing supply to no end. Well, you know, it's worth pointing out that the Hasbro, one of, a Hasbro investors call was today. And, you know, you'd have to get JR, because JR was paying more attention to it and understood it a little better. But apparently they're reporting... I didn't know. I don't remember if they said they were reporting more growth than they've seen in a couple of years, or if they said that they're expecting more growth than they've seen in a couple of years. But it was pretty rosy. Nope, I'm not convinced. Magic is ruined forever. What What will convince you? Uh, if we go back to way less supplemental products, I'd be way happier holding stuff in Magic. But we got what seven or eight supplemental products this year. Or seven or eight, pro we got 10 products overall this year. Seven or eight of them were supplemental. It's way too much. Way That's for the market to decide, not you. Yeah, I know. I'm just some schmuck with cards. But that's just my opinion. I'm inclined. Like, yeah. Sorry, uh, I'm inclined to agree with you here. I, I don't quite think the sky is falling. But with the way supplemental products have just slowly been rolling out, I'm almost expecting every day or every Monday that I come back from a Grand Prix or some trip, that wizard just makes some ridiculous announcement like, oh, the reserve list is going away. I, I'm sure it won't be anything that drastic, but with the way the masterpieces came out, I, I think I was coming back from Louisville or some uh, some event, and I just saw it. I, I was just so confused, like especially with the statement that we will continue to see masterpieces in every set from here on out. And you know, like these are just it was it, it's nice as a novelty kind of back in battle when it was a throwback to the original uh, Zendikar treasures. But now it's almost like they've just completely lost their appeal 
you've they what they've done is they completely devalued foils to oblivion mythics are the new rare rares are basically uncommons now it's hard to see rares being worth anything um i actually have a standing wager with some employees at the store that in a few months time by december or so no card in caldash will be worth more than 15 dollars and based on one how many how much product people are opening and two the the unintentional devaluation of the set as a whole as a result of the masterpieces um whether or not this is intentional i'm sure they didn't intend it to be this way but i think this is one of those things that as a vendor as someone who's heavily invested in magic it's just something that is always going to kind of be on the forefront of my mind now whenever i decide oh i'm just gonna buy like you know twenty thousand dollars worth of cards especially higher end cards or things that are less liquid than modern standard cards so I just want to double check there. Uh, you said you don't think that this was intentional by Wizards because this seems like a pretty calculated decision to lower the price of standard. I, I people, I, I okay, I, I wasn't very eloquent. Lowering the price of standard was intentional. That because they do, they did explicitly mention, oh, we want we want casual players to be able to buy into um, buying the standard going forward right. to, just by lowering the price. I think the unintentional part of it is that they are devaluing people's cards going forward. Any player who is starting to buy into standard right now, they can safely say that, from my perspective, I can safely look at them and say that as a collectible card game, Magic has very, very low value for you. Going forward, your cards will not be worth very much as a whole compared to collections of people who started playing two years ago, four years ago, etc. Sure. I also think, though, that, like, in their long-term design, they're hoping that collections you own now for standard will be more playable in modern five years ago, five years from now, than collections five years ago were. Like they're injecting modern playable cards, like two or three, into every single set nowadays. And so five years from now, I think the the face of modern will be a lot less dark confidants, tarmogoyfs, and more like collected companies, abrupt decays. Uh, Siege Rhino, like modern cards that they specifically designed to be printed on mass. But but then why are they trying to marginalize modern, right? Like because it's like, a shitty format. That's why. I agree with you, but I mean, as a as a whole, right? Like the if the first step is hey, let's get rid of the modern Pro Tour. What's really left there, like for modern players? Like we haven't seen the huge giant um like grand prix charlotte type events uh for modern that we have seen in the past like the three thousand player modern tournaments are pretty much gone now right and it's just there's there's like almost no modern season anymore and especially now that a lot of places i've actually started to see i i've seen more sealed pptqs during modern season than actual modern pptqs compared to most other seasons when most places would just prefer to run standard over sealed at least at least at least that's yeah. my experience obviously i'm not showing that as Right. Yeah, no, that's just that's just what I've observed. It's in Wizards' best interest to marginalize the format, though. Like, it's in their best interest to keep it as, oh, hey, once your standard cards rotate rotate out, here's this fun format you can play at FNM with your friends, maybe at a GP every now and again. But like, keep buying standard, please. Like, it's in their best interest for you to not like buy into modern and say, oh, hey, screw it, like I'll just keep modern and forget standard. Like, it's in their best interest for you not to do that because then you're only buying in once. Right, but you had said that the people who are buying standard card, if you're a player looking to get into Magic right now and you're buying right. standard cards, you said that Wizards is hoping that you will continue that your cards will be continue to see play uh, playability modern, like the collective companies, the Siege Rhinos, right. Abrupt Decays, those types of things. 
Yeah. Right? So if that if that's a goal, why would they why would they just marginalize modern? Like I, I think I, that. I think I, I might not be fully understanding you. I think we might be saying something very similar, just kind of in different ways. But yeah, like they want you to buy into standard with the hopes that your cards won't be worthless in four years because they're playable in modern, or they, not that they won't be worthless, but that they'll still be playable in four years, even if they're worthless. Is that better description? Oh, okay. So, but so if their goal is intentionally to make cards worthless, right? I don't necessarily yeah. think that's a great direction that the game wants to go, especially if you're trying to market it as a collectible card game. Okay. Huh. Interesting discussion, guys. And this is what like, you get when you bring people that are actually qualified to podcasts that actually know what the hell they're talking about. Who, who are you contrasting that with? <laughs> oh, I mean, I don't add anything to the conversation. I just like spouting that magic. Like, is Corbin, like my my. My argument shines up basically exactly with Corbin's, but he explains it a lot better than I do. Well, hopefully we'll get him on on a future cast to talk about it. What are you guys, let's segue a little bit. What's your pick of the week? What card do you think has the most potential from where it's at right now? That was a wonderful segue. Yep. Straight, straight segue. Some would skip me. Hang on. Travis? I definitely have not thought about it at all. Wow, we we took one whole week off, and you guys couldn't come up with a single pick of the week. I don't like any magic card at all. <laughs> yep, I agree. Is magic what's that? Like you just hate magic now? <laughs> like not concerning the pick of the week. You just don't so, like magic cards anymore. Somebody just tweeted a T-shirt with a uh, white nationalism logo and, and Magic the Gathering at the same time. So maybe I do hate magic. Wait, what? Somebody just <laughs> tweeted a t-shirt that's a white nationalist symbol and like we play magic the gathering like that's the shirt it's just like magic gathering white nationalism is this facebook or like no this is twitter this is uh i think oh i, I don't know i, I think uh, whatever i'm not gonna name names but man you follow the weirdest shit uh like, no it got retweeted into my timeline by somebody else oh no i see i see i see it I just, yeah. Okay. No, I know who you're. Okay. So that explains uh, yes. everything, though. I hate I hate magic. Yeah. Okay. So you guys have no pick of the week. Uh, Travis and I will audible to restore balance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. I'll take it. I am on board with that. <laughs> okay. In that case, I'm gonna go with memory jar the from the vault foiling. Uh, Your audio cut out there. I'm gonna go with memory jar the from the vault foiling. Uh, for some unexpected reason, it jumped a couple months ago. It almost doubled, in fact. I don't know who could have possibly done that, but... Some, somebody, <laughs> somebody on this cast bought out my copies from TCU Player. Hypothetically instead, speaking. Instead of, really? asking, instead of just tweeting at me and saying, hey, can I buy your copies on TCG Player so you don't eat TCG Player fees, he just bought them on TCG Player. Yeah. Not going to name names, though. Hypothetically, someone on this cast owns 1% of the entire From the Vault Memory Jar print run. So, yeah, you should buy that card. Card seems good. <laughs> Ed, do you have a pick of the week? Um, looking from a more not-so-insane standpoint of Restore Balance or From the Vault Memory Jar, a card that people <laughs> might actually want to buy, um, I'm more intrigued by uh, cards that might be uh, going forward, in mainly the province weekend, something along the lines like Fleet Wheel Cruiser. It's a relatively low opportunity cost. We've seen vehicle decks do well, and it's been proven that 
the that vehicles are very very good against the control decks, which were the two uh, decks that met in the finals of the Pro Tour. So as as we all know, aggro tends to beat up on control. So I expect to see more heavy like a heavier aggro field this weekend than control decks that showed up at the Pro Tour. So I would say like Fleet Wheel Cruiser, very low opportunity cost. Probably could realistically see play as a four of in multiple decks. So that would be my pick of the week. The picks of the week are tricky when they come from like Jeremy and yourself, simply because you guys get to look at, you guys get to basically buy as a store and sell as a store, which are great margins. But for like Doug and I, we're like, you know, we're buying at TCG. You do realize Doug has a shop front too. It's not not like a tournament shop front though. But people come in and they expect to lose value. Sure. But like, it's not, I'm not sitting like at an FNM table with like a binder. I'm like, somebody's like texting me saying, Hey, can you meet up at the show? Like there's no magic events there. There's a small, oh. it's a bit, vid- I've told this before. It's a video game store that I used to work at that happens to let me have a display case there and use their space to like buy and sell magic singles and bulk stuff. It is not an F and M shop. It is not anything relating to do with magic. It's not wizards licensed. I don't have anything like that. I just have a space for magic cards. But on the plus side, you don't schedule a win a mox for standard on the same weekend as a turno weekend, not realizing that you booked the wrong week for a turno weekend and then missing out on a turno weekend. Oh, the the bad beats. You were saying, Travis? Uh, the point is, is that my picks, I think, are the hardest out of everyone we have on the cast. Like it is the, it is hardest for me to to make profitable picks because I don't have the ins and outs that you guys do. Sure, that's true. Yep. Like, I All can right. still buy resting pieces for $2 and nobody, and like, you're the, you can't. Yeah. All right. Let's go ahead and wrap this cast up then. Where can people find you guys? You can feel like the third time we're going to answer this question in the past hour. Yeah, pretty much. All right. Twitter, Facebook, Google, Reddit, etc. Douglas Johnson. Next. Uh, Edward Nguyen. Uh, at Crohn's Game Store. I'll be in Providence this weekend with a booth. You guys can follow me on Twitter at edwin89, similar to Taylor Swift 89 Big fan of hers. So had to model my name after her. Travis? Uh, you can't find me. I don't exist. He's I've at never, the Salty Spittoon. I've never said any of this before. It certainly wasn't eight minutes ago in this cast. Yep. Don't look for me. Okay. You can find Travis at Wizard Bumpin. You can find him on MTG. B-U-M-P-I-N. Yep. <laughs> you gotta add that in. Well, because I don't know yeah. if people look at me, whatever. No, like, no, Travis, that's something I've, I've been thinking about in like, the past hour. Like, when Sig said his thing, it's like, oh, it's Sig Bay Gate. I'm like, oh, he doesn't have to explain it or spell it out like you and I do. Like, we made really terrible decisions. And I'm Zemet on Twitter at Zemet Sells Magic. You're probably watching this live on YouTube because we've been interacting with the chat. Well, at least some of us have. If not, You're listening to us on iTunes or SoundCloud, and we appreciate it a lot. And as always, we'll leave you with one last piece of financial wisdom. Can we cut his mic? Because he didn't have a pun this entire thing. And if he did, I didn't hear it. MTG Finance Tip number 108. Remember not to drink with ghosts because they can't hold their booze. Thanks for watching Cartel Aristocrats Finance Cast number 29, and we'll see you guys next week.